Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of MedTech POV, the podcast brought to you by Advomed, the world's largest trade association for medical technology companies. I'm your host, Scott Whitaker, president and CEO of Advomed. And today, we're pleased to have with us Mick Farrell, the CEO and director of ResMed, a leading global medtech company in the sleep disorder and digital technology space, and a company whose leadership early on in the pandemic, when ventilators were in short supply, undoubtedly saved thousands of lives. I know I'm looking forward to hearing what that critical time was like for him as a company leader and what those in our audience aspiring to lead companies themselves someday can learn from it. We'll also get into the policy issues surrounding data privacy and interoperability as medical technologies companies become more and more connected, as well as the implications of the semiconductor chip shortage for patients and what we can do about it. Mick is also a board member of AvMed, where his hard work on behalf of the entire medtech industry is indispensable. Mick, welcome to the podcast. Mick, welcome to the show. It's great to have you on today. Scott, great to be here with you. I'm really excited to be part of this podcast. Yeah, thank you. So I always like to start out just uh, giving the listener a sense of who the person is behind the big title of CEO. So if we could start there, Mick, give me a sense of, of your background and, and what led you to become CEO of ResMed. Wow. Well, I like to say that I've got five jobs in the world. ResMed isn't my number one job. My number one job is to is to be a child of God and to just reverence something greater than me. My number two job is to be husband to Lisette Del Carmen Figueroa Rodriguez de Farrell and just really being part of that partnership, which is a husband and wife and raising a family. My number three job is to be father to Camille and James, a daughter just going off to college and a son on his way through high school. My fourth job is to be CEO of ResMed, an S&P 500 company, $3 billion in sales, $30 billion in market cap, but more important than any of that, helping 137 million people in 140 countries to sleep better, breathe better, and live better lives outside the hospital. And my number five job is to be involved in nonprofits and give back to my community. You know, I serve on the board of Father Joe's Villages Project for the Homeless in downtown San Diego. And I got to say, that's probably one of the most rewarding things I do. Mm. We earn a lot of income in these roles, but it's nice to be able to give back, not just the money, but the time to a charity that only has the goal of giving people food, shelter, warmth and, and love and, and hope, frankly, yeah. which we all need right now. But anyway, I don't know if that's where you're going, but that's a little bit of the background. No, that's great. For me. That's great. Let's start with job number four today and then we'll get to five and maybe we'll circle back to one, two and three by the time it's done. So you've been on quite a run as CEO of ResMed, but a couple of years ago you were hit with COVID like we all were and in the center of the storm, right? At the early stages when ventilators were the big issue that we were dealing with. Can you can you walk back a couple of years and reflect on that experience that you went through and the company went through and how you survived it? Yeah, I mean, look, we've been on quite a ride at ResMed. I mean, even before COVID, we'd sort of reinvented the company. I'd call it like a reverse Amazon play around digital health. Amazon was a software company that had 100% connectivity in the hardware of the Kindle to sell more software books. ResMed's play was we were a hardware company making medical devices, CPAPs, APAPs, vials, ventilators, and masks. Yep. And we had 100% connectivity in our SNS-10, our SNS-11, but our SNS-10, 10th generation product, we had 100% connectivity so that we could liberate the data to the cloud and then use that digital health information to 
get costs down, setting patients up on therapy and improve it here and ultimately improve more lives. So we were on that journey in the midst of that. You know, we sort of skipped right. off that project mid-2014. mid, mid 2014. And as that accelerated, yeah, then COVID hit in 2020. And so what are you going to do with a respiratory medical company running a digital health strategy amidst right. a crisis like this? And i got to say, as we all were here at MedTech, Scott, we were thrown into the fire there. And it's a very small part of our business. I want to say, you know, high single-digit percentage of our, our revenues in ventilators. But I had an army general calling me at 7 a.m. Sunday yep. morning. Yep. And Scott, you were across some of this with yep. me because we were sharing details with the White House. And it was the Trump administration and it was HHS and it was FEMA demanding ventilators. I had similar calls from the German government where we have a large operation in Germany. We manufacture in Singapore and in Sydney, Australia, and I had conversations with the government's ministers of health of both of those countries as well. And it was really interesting to see how different governments behave. The US government used the Defence Production Act and said the parts and pieces that go into ventilators have to be prioritised. We actually had none of our parts and pieces made in the US for our ventilators, very few, maybe a couple of them, 500 components, maybe two or three were made in the US. But it, it made this implication that people around the world sort of said, wow, if this first time since 1954 we have the DPA in play, this has to be important. And all of our supply chain stepped up and we made, yeah. I want to say in the end of our sort of flagship ventilator called the Astral, we made 5X. 500% the volume in, in that first half of 2020 versus the first half of 2019. And across our whole ventilator range, we were up 3.5x, 350%. But it was really, it was almost a public-private partnership where we bonded together. Scott, you helped us here at AdverMed to get as an industry together. And we actually went with the tech companies. We went with Google and created, you know, a flow of all the bits and pieces that we were missing, the components and the materials we were able to put out there. And as an industry, we really came together. And I was blown yeah. away that US Army general, I was able to say, hey, he wanted 2,550 devices, like he calculated that. And I said, actually, our epidemiology model of the global flow of this virus from Wuhan to Milan to New York says we can give you exactly 2,550. I mean, we were within 1% out resume yeah. calculations on epidemiology versus US government. But that was just a crazy six months. And then it came up and then it went away and we were stuck with all the rest of the world being shut yeah. down. God. Yeah. Yeah. Some of the forgotten heroes of the early stages of COVID were your employees who worked through the uncertainty, through the fear to continue to produce not only ventilators, but the rest of your products as well, because people relied on that and needed them right through that time. So you couldn't shut down. You had to keep going, right? Yeah, that part was just crazy. A lot of companies could shut down and everyone went remote. But as you said, we were making ventilators. They were needed. We made 150,000 ventilators during that time. You know, as I said, 3.5x before. They probably saved many, many hundreds of thousands of lives because they were used yeah. multiple times each. And that wouldn't have happened if we didn't have, yeah, heroes showing up yeah. in Sydney in Singapore, in Atlanta, in Los Angeles, and throughout the Netherlands, in our big distribution centers, our big manufacturing centers. And frankly, Scott, some of the biggest heroes were Resmedians, that's what we call ourselves, Resmedians yeah. in the early stages in full hazmat suits, yeah. setting yeah. people up on the ventilators. Because it's, yeah. mm. you can't just throw a ventilator on and say, well, good luck you know, to a patient, yeah. particularly suffering from the severe COVID in 2020. 
we had respiratory therapists there on site setting people up. So manufacturing, supply chain, distribution, tech service, and those frontline pulmonary doctors and respiratory therapists, they were the true heroes in 2020, saving many, many hundreds of thousands, probably globally, millions of lives potentially, because before we had vaccines and before we had these good antibody treatments and infusion treatments and Paxlovid, you were seeing people suffocating from the inside where your mucus was filling your lungs and people needed defense. Nick, are you back to normal, if we can use that term anymore, as a company? And how long did it take you once you got through that ventilator crisis to sort of get your company shifted back to day-to-day operations and some type of normalcy? You know, I mean, I, I think, Scott, once you've been through a crisis, you're never the same. Aristotle said once the brain has been stretched with a new idea, it never returns to its original size. And, mm-hmm. and that's true of education and anything you learn. And I think the world, having survived the crisis of 2020, COVID-19, then going through the sort of how do we get back to, I won't say normalcy, but how do we get back to a new world in 2021? And here in 2022, you know, halfway through it now, I think we're at a point where we're saying, well, what are all the great lessons? Our mind was stretched with these new ideas. What are the lessons that we're going to permanently remember and apply in our field, Scott, across medtech, and particularly in, in our field of respiratory medical tech, there were a couple of things. Number one was the embracement of telemedicine, digital health. I'm going to say, you know, we're having a, a podcast here. I'm, I'm seeing you on screen. I've got you in big enough on screen that this could be a teleconsult. This could be a telemedicine yeah. visit. Yeah, right. Yeah. And, and not just for the trivial, you know, people think, oh, it's just for dermatology and psychology. There's actually, even in respiratory medicine, history and physical you could have an Apple Watch on or some other wearable right now, and I could be looking at your SpO2, your blood right. oxygen, on my screen real time. Right. You right. could have an Apple Watch right now, and I could be looking at your EKG. So I think that embracement of digital health for what I would call end-to-end treatment, your screening, diagnosis, treatment, and management of a patient with sleep apnea or chronic obstructive pulmonary diseases, the two big diseases that we treat, also respiratory insufficiency for neuromuscular disease and so on. But digital health is the number one thing, Scott, from COVID that has been learned and won't be forgotten. The second one was people were dying of a communicable respiratory disease in this coronavirus. And we're in the, the field of respiratory medicine. And so we saw Respiratory health and respiratory hygiene shoot to the top of people's radar screens, if you like. Mm. Even just patients who have to repeatedly buy masks and tubing and humidifier systems on our sleep apnea and COPD treatment systems, they increased their purchases to keep hygiene and to keep clean masks and clean systems. And so that was incredible for me to see that approach. And the third and final one, which happened during COVID, was people want to find ways to get taken care of for their health outside the hospital. During this crisis, hospitals were overloaded, ICUs, CCUs, emergency rooms, and people just didn't want to go there because they could catch COVID. It should right. always be the case that you don't want to get health care at the emergency room, at the ICU, yeah. the CCU room, right? Yeah. But that's where about 80% of the healthcare visits happen. And so I think those three things, digital health, respiratory health and hygiene, and out-of-hospital health care, were really important in 2019, 2020, 2021 made them essential. And now as we go to the new normal, I think the embracement of all three of them are going to be incredibly important and they're they're laser focused really, ResMed strategies in those areas and and we're going to push digital health, we're going to push 
importance of respiratory health and hygiene, and 90% of our revenues and profits are outside the hospital. So that's where we're, we're really focused on taking care of a billion people worldwide. Nick, you were ahead of the curve on the digital health, connected health space, though, right? Even before COVID hit, you were already moving in that direction. It expedited it in many ways. But as you come out of it, I suspect you're ahead of where you thought you would be as a result of COVID to some degree, right? So what's the future look like for you and the digital health space? Well, it's a great question. And yeah, I look, it's been part of our strategy, really, going back even 20 years. We were, <laughs> I'd say we were on the bleeding edge back then in 2002 when we were putting two-way pages on the back of, of our sixth or seventh generation device, uh, yeah. the S7. But it was interesting because we were doing experiments and what we found is that just the thought that the doctor or the nurse or your caregiver is watching you, and, and we would do a placebo control arm in these studies where we'd put a fake pager on someone's device and then a real pager on others to just determine... Even just the thought of your doctor checking up on a, on a digital health record increased people's adherence to our therapy. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. think about it. If your doctor knew if you took that pill and, and they, they knew when that cap went off and they knew when the weight changed, which they can now, wouldn't you take the pill a little more often? And uh, yeah. average pharmaceutical adherence is 50% post a heart attack with a free prescription. This is a New England Journal of Medicine study. And so... We'd always embraced digital health in that bleeding edge, you know, 20 years ago. But, yeah, about eight years ago when we when we did that reverse Amazon play, did 100% connectivity, and we can talk about semiconductor comms chips and yeah, we'll that if, yeah. if we, if we yeah. want to. But putting that chip inside every single device these last eight years, it's changed the world. I mean, we now have 17 million 100% cloud-connectable medical devices in 140 wow. countries worldwide. We have 11.5 billion nights of medical data in the cloud at what we call wow. solutions. And everyone talks about big data. What we want to do is extract actionable, valuable information that can help Scott as the patient engage with his therapy. And so we right. we have 4 million people with an app called Maya and they engage yep. with their therapy in the same way my daughter uses TikTok or my son uses Instagram and that those tech companies have gamified uh, consumer technology and tech. We're using gamification to gamify uh, medical device patients. And, and I, I actually say med tech patients because when you are coached by an app that says, hey, do you want to sleep better, breathe better and live a better life? And you can have a video that shows the more you use this therapy, the better your outcomes. And right. we do it in a really, I would say, personalized medicine approach. But yes, I do think COVID has accelerated the digital health strategy because it's allowed consumers around the world to realize that personalized medicine, engaging with therapy, engaging with their medical care digitally can be really fruitful to improve outcomes, lower costs, and for the individual, just frankly, to have a better quality of life. Yeah, you talk about my air and the ability for a patient to see what's happening to them on a daily basis and have a little bit more control as a patient slash consumer over how they're caring for themselves, it seems to me that it would drive down costs in the system tremendously as well, right? Fewer visits, fewer concerns, fewer calls, right? Because you know and you have some control over that. It's not only a thought, it's been proven. We've got peer-reviewed published evidence. Actually, Kaiser Permanente published this 
what they showed is when you have 100% connectivity and engagement so that the doctors using AirView, which is an online system of those 11.5 billion, you know, looking at their patients, management by exception, managing the patient, and the patients using MyAir, so they're, as you said, they're engaging in their own therapy, we show a 50% labour cost reduction in wow. the screening, diagnosis and setup of the patient on our therapy. And so Kaiser Permanente, peer-reviewed and publicist, I said, why are you publishing this? You know, all your competitors are going to see it, the Blue Cross right. and Shields, the Geisinger's. They said, no, 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 we're publishing that because we're on to the next phase of using digital health and chronic disease management across sleep apnea and heart failure, and we're just showing where we've been. But it's really interesting. I take those data and I show them to, to other countries or other states or other payers, and they say, fantastic, Scott, prove it in my data, prove it with yeah. my and show it all over again. So it's almost like I watch what Disney's doing with the Star Wars franchise, right? Where it's not just three movies from the 80s and 90s. They've now, or six movies from the 80s and 90s. They've now turned this into an ongoing franchise. And frankly, I would love it to just be one and done that we have one study that shows we we lower costs and improve outcomes. But it turns out we have to overlap the 11.5 billion nights of data with 140 country systems. And in the US, as you know, Scott, I'm going to take 50 states with yeah. five to seven payers each. And so it's like a 250 to 350 point matrix where I have to have the Star Wars episodes coming out to prove I right. lower costs and improve outcomes in every part of that map. But we've got the artificial intelligence, the machine learning and the data analytics teams to do it. And we just roll up our sleeves. We partner with the people. We focus on privacy. We focus on cybersecurity. And we focus on interoperability because the one thing we have to do as med tech is make sure that we keep those at the top because consumer tech turned the person into the product. And here at MedTech, we have to be stewards of those data and keep it private, keep it secure, and only use interoperability when the patient gives us permission to give it to their doctor or to their own or to their healthcare provider for managing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You mentioned it earlier, Mick, and I'll shift gears a little bit, but in order to have good connected health, in order to have updated medical technology, it requires you to have the chips that are needed when you manufacture to keep and store all that data and keep products operational, right? We had a meeting, as you know, with Secretary Raimondo a few weeks back and talked to her about the challenges that we're seeing across the industry. And I know you were seeing some of those as well. How is that looking for you now? And what's your concern at this point? Well, look, Scott, I, I want to give credit here to Advermed and this fantastic industry association that you're CEO of and I serve on the board of, because it's at times like this in a crisis, flashing back to our first uh, 10 minutes or so talking about COVID, watching this industry come together. Yeah. And I think it was uh, Chairman Kevin Lobo was chairman during that yeah. time. And he and I both worked in sort of chemicals and manufacturing industries. And we'd seen a hyper-competitive nature of some of those other industries, chemicals industry, mining, steel, and so on that we'd worked at. And he'd been part of industry associations and not seen them to come together. He said that what happened in MedTech and how we came together for ventilators, for diagnostic treatment, and really partnering as an industry was unlike he'd ever seen in any industry. And and I just love the fact that there was partnership across the board, even with competitors sitting there with lawyers in the room, obviously, to make sure that we're not saying anything that we shouldn't, but making sure that we address the crisis as best we could. I fast forward from the COVID crisis to the COVID, you know, ventilator and, and diagnostics to now the COVID recovery crisis, I'll call it, and the shortage of electronic components, particularly semiconductors, watching our industry come together 
And Scott, you getting an audience there with the Department of Commerce, the Secretary of Commerce, who was a great governor and got stuff yeah. done. Yeah. and actually brought change as an executive and governor. I have confidence that she can bring change there at, at the Department of Commerce. She listened to us. There were at least seven CEOs from BD, from ResMed and, and, and beyond, Hologic, and, and all of us had the same message, which is semiconductor chips are in a crisis now. They're in a shortage. Should they go? And it's a great industry. Automotive provides a lot of employment. But, you know, a Tesla takes around 1,000 processing semiconductor chips, 1,000. Yeah. Do you know how many I have in a life-saving ventilator? How many? Two. Two. Yeah. So so do we need one more Model 3 Tesla going zero to 60 in five seconds? Yeah. Or do we need 500 ventilators that can give the gift of breath? And, And ironically, we've actually prioritized our own internal allocations because we're looking at the humanitarian side. We are not short on life support ventilators, but when you get down to non-invasive ventilators, adaptive servo ventilators, bi-levels, APAPs and CPAPs that treat people suffocating with sleep apnea, we are on a shortage. I love the industry coming together. I love that the Department of Commerce is listening to us, and I love that Secretary Raimondo is now out there in the media talking about prioritising medical devices Uh, Do we need one more car, one more cloud-connected wine refrigerator, or do we need one more medical device? And we know the answer is that. I'm hoping the semiconductor companies are really listening and really prioritising, and and I actually think, because there's likely to be some slowdown in the economy, we'll get some natural allocation back to a recession-resistant industry like medtech. But I would love it if the semiconductor companies got ahead of that. Uh, Some of them are listening some of the prioritizing. And I love the fact that Avamed came together. It gave us sort of, if you like, the air cover to now send in our ability to go and work in the field with those semiconductor manufacturers and really re-engineer our products to get supply. So we're working through it. We're not yet through it. I I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. And it looks like towards the end of this calendar year, we're going to get more and more supply of the semiconductors. Yeah, that's really encouraging to hear. Reflecting back on calls we've had directly with the semiconductor industry, Initially, I think they were almost surprised. They didn't realize the small amount that we needed in order to continue to support the healthcare system the way we expected to support it. And uh, it's good to hear that you've gotten response from them in that respect. So, yeah, well, and we've also taken a little bit into our own hands, Scott. We we re-engineered one of our products. We sort of almost went back to 2014. We took out mm. the the 4G chip out of one of our lines of products. We okay. almost back to what you'd call sneaker net. In the old days where you'd have an SD card in the device, we call it encrypted card to cloud. And we're going to make, you know, many hundreds of thousands uh, per quarter of a device that we call card to cloud. And it's just going to avoid the most rate limiting step, which is that communications semiconductor chip. We'll be rate limited on the next semiconductor chip, which is a controller within the device, which we also still have to have essentially for for running the ventilator or the APAP or the sleep apnea therapy device. But yeah, we're doing everything we can, validating new supplies, re-engineering products, and also partnering with the industry. I think all of that sort of portfolio together, Scott, gives us line of sight to say we can can get through this and, and take care of the patients. Many hundreds of thousands of patients just sitting there waiting for care. Yeah. As a CEO, as a leader, you have to be creative, innovative, and adapt to whatever the environment is, right? You can't control that. You just have to react to it oftentimes, which kind of leads me to the next question. There are a lot of younger CEOs that look up to you, Mick, and at some point want to be in a job like yours, right? I always like to ask those established CEOs if they have some leadership lessons that they could share 
with others about what it takes to lead a company and grow a company like you have and what the path looks like for them. Can you can you reflect on that a little bit and your thoughts there? Yes, Scott. Well, we could do a whole podcast around around leadership. It's a huge question. And I think the thing that I'd start with is find an area that you have passion, that you just love it. And I'm going to say, having worked in steel and chemicals and then biotech industry, coming to medtech, I found my passion. I found what I love doing. And it's interesting. It's almost like if you overlap passion with something that does good for the world. So there's some altruism there. And then the third circle I'd say is, we can talk about nonprofits later, but aligning with with a, a successful either public or profitable company, because then it can be almost like a flywheel on the success that if you overlap that passion with the altruism, with the profit motive, you can get a really beautiful intersection of those three circles. And so I really encourage, you know, whether it's my daughter or my son or any Resmedian I'm talking to saying, how do I find where I can perform the best? I'm going to overlap those three circles. Only you know where you work best. Only you know how you work best. And then within a company, you can say, okay, well, I'm in MedTech. I'm in ResMed. Okay, well, then it's, you know, is your passion sales? Is your passion marketing? Is your passion finance? Is your passion operations? Or some combination, general management? Is it technology? Is it patient engagement? And just looking for that passion, overlapping that, and then really putting that to work. I think that's that's an area. Another one was interesting, and you actually brought a great uh, guest speaker. It might have been Mike Minogue, our new chair, brought in Jim Collins to come and talk to yeah. us about the, right. the different types of leadership. And one that really struck me was his analysis and those paired groups of the most successful companies. And then he looked specifically at the CEO's characteristics of those successful companies. And it was an interesting I would almost say dichotomy that he said it was an overlap of two different traits. One, which you just sort of understand, incredible confidence in the strategy, in the team, in the mission, and the values and the ability to execute. So incredible confidence of the CEO, but combined with very high levels of humility. Mm, yeah. And what was interesting about that is that seems dichotomous. How can you be very confident but also have humility? And I think, and this is what I'd say to anyone coming up through an organization, that when you get to the last job that you can get promoted to, the CEO, you are the furthest from the customer if you grew up in sales and marketing like I did. You're the furthest from the production line if you've worked in manufacturing. You know, my first job as a production engineer on the steel works line, molten metal coming down, watching it get cooled. That's front line. I know exactly how a product's being formed because I'm forming it. I am now. 20 steps removed. And so if there's a semiconductor crisis and I have to understand manufacturing and supply chain better than ever, I need to have incredible levels of humility to understand that customer engagement in a supply chain crisis where you're allocating product to customers. I mean, we've never done that before in the history of the company. We're now allocating limited supply. We are working with suppliers sevenfold deep. I not only have humility, I get humbled every day talking to the supply yeah. chain, Six Sigma black belts who are doing this right. Monte Carlo simulation and real options analysis of supply chains. And I'm sitting there, wow, what does that all mean? How does it work? And I think, so I put those traits, I put incredible confidence in yourself, your strategy, your thing, but combined with incredible humility, knowing that as you go up through the organization, you're further away. And what that allows you to do, I hope, 
is empower your team. I'd summarise it this way in leadership. Empower your team with an amazing strategy. We have our ResMed 2025 strategy. Help 250 million people sleep better, breathe better, live better lives in out-of-hospital healthcare by 2025, right? So have a great strategy. Pick the best people. Have the people who literally in every job are the best in your company, in the market, to be able to do that role. Better than you. Better than you in that role. Yeah. And then thirdly, provide them the flexibility, you know, give them the capital, give them the resources, the cash flow, the investments, whether it's balance sheet or cash flow, the resources, but get out of their way and let them operate. Yeah. Then have a regular rhythm of communication where you're engaging one-on-one and one-on-many and bringing the team together for collaboration and communication because we'll win together as a team or we'll lose together as a team. But I think... Those would be the the main traits. As I said, Scott, we could do a whole one-hour podcast just on leadership, which we probably should at some point. uh, Yeah, let's do that. We should schedule another time to just focus on that because it's fascinating to learn from leaders like you. But Mick, I wanted to shift gears real quick to the work you do on the nonprofit side because you mentioned how important that is. I think you said it was your fifth job, but it was critically important to you, right, to make sure that you're giving back to your community. Talk about the work that you're doing there. Yeah, well, it's my fifth job after, you know, God, my wife, my kids, and, and ResMed. And, yeah. and actually, you know, the only reason it's after ResMed is because, you know, if you don't have a job, you don't have the money and capability right. and time to be able to give right. back. But I, I, I just have found in business, there's return on investment. You analyze, you put dollars or time or, or capital of some type into a problem, you get a, an ROI, a return yeah. on investment over time. And Public company CEO, I have to be thinking about returns for my shareholders and all my stakeholders that they put effort into ResMed, whether it's community or an investor directly, and I've got to get that return to them. In the nonprofit side, I think it's more ROS, return on soul. When you think about that, what does that mean? That means thinking about the metaphysical side, thinking about not only, you know, with Father Joe's Villages, not only are we giving food, shelter, warmth, we're also giving love and we're also giving faith and hope to people. Yeah. And yeah. and I think, you know, when, when there's a person suffering from homelessness, and I hate the term when people say a homeless person, you know, because when you put that hyphen there, it sort of assumes that they're in a fixed state or, you know, right. that, it's a person suffering from homelessness. It can be a combination of mental health issues. It can be a combination of life issues, of, of right. economy, of personal issues that have happened. And, 80 to 90% of the people in the homeless arena are seeking and can find a path out of a current state of homelessness to a new life. And I'm just watching, we just finished a new construction downtown called St. Mother Teresa of Calcutta Villages. And what we've done is create actually a high-rise building. There's limited space in downtown San Diego, but we were able to build a high-rise building that has literally a floor for single men, a floor for single women, a floor for families, a floor for young people in different age groups. And what we're able to do is when you when you give people a path to say, look, there's the villages, which is 100% covered, no questions asked, you can get a bed, you can get a meal, you can get taken care of anytime, like the original founder, yeah. Father Joe said, peanut butter sandwiches and training for everybody, right? But as you move through it, what we're actually trying to do is say, well, let's have an apartment area where you can have good space, you know, your own bathroom and your own chance to get out. But you're going to pay, let's say, 25% of the rent that's there, the market rent, so that you're contributing something and getting a little bit more in return. And we're going to be building facilities that you pay 50% 
of the costs and then 75% of the cost. And they just get, you know, larger, maybe a separate apartment as you go through. And what we're trying to do is find a path that when people are in homelessness and then they get suddenly out, they just can't afford the crazy rents, the crazy world you go to yeah. from paying nothing to 100%. They say, actually, it's easier on the street or it's easier just back in, in the village. Yeah. We want to have sort of a path out. So I don't want to focus all the time, but what I can say is, what I'm enjoying is applying almost the same principles of business strategy, business theory, investment, and empowering the 1 billion people who suffer from sleep apnea and COPD in my business. I'm helping, just as a board member, advise the CEO of Farlejo's Villages so that he and his team can use that same strategy and empowerment to help 8,000 people get food, shelter, warmth, love, and hopefully a path out of homelessness, the current state, to a functional member of society. And I actually think it's incredibly exciting to see that. So it's not just about taking time and feeling good and getting that ROS. It's about hopefully changing a paradigm within 30 miles of my place. Can you mm. believe 10,000 yeah. people don't have a house? Yeah. I yeah. just think if you can find a nonprofit that's local to you, that you're passionate about, and you can put some time into it, I hope we can end homelessness for the vast, vast 80, 90% that we can find a path out there and then take care of the other 10, 20%. But as you can tell, I'm really passionate about yeah. that charity. No, that's great. And I can imagine, Mick, in the last two years going through COVID exacerbated the problem. And then you add on the current economic problems that we're having, it's going to make it even worse. And so the need for Father Joe's village and the support that you're providing has probably never been more critical than it is right now. So. Absolutely. As we see, it's uh, inflation's at 7 8%. Milk is $10 a gallon. Gasoline in San Diego airport the other day, $7. People can't afford this. And, and homelessness, yeah. sadly, in a recession or at least a slowdown, if we get a smooth landing, it's going to go up. And so more than ever, it's important. I don't want to forget, I'm involved in other non-profits. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Rady Children's Hospital here locally. Yeah. Yeah. Being on the board of a children's hospital, <laughs> it's you know, an unpaid, unpaid role, these non-profits. But I can tell you, that we can sequence the human genome of a baby in 25 hours now and change the course of care for a rare disease down there at Rady Children's Genomics Institute. And I look wow. at that ability for us to take Illumina's great technology over there, yeah. apply it on a child and change the course of their therapy from a potentially fatal surgery that the signs and symptoms look like to actually know it's this rare disease and there is a path out of it all within 24 hours. I'm blown away by what that team over at Rady Children's is able to achieve. And yeah. I'm sure many uh, of the medtech CEOs volunteer in, in hospitals. I think a children's hospital is particularly moving because, you know, those people have 80 to 90 years ahead of them if we can if we can help a child get on the, the, the yeah. Medicare in, in their yeah. early years and the neonate and so on. And it's just incredibly life-changing. Well, that's incredible what you're doing, Mick, and thank you for doing that. And what a great example you're setting for young aspiring CEOs and those who are already in the role about what you can do to give back when you've been successful already. It's that's amazing. So thanks for sharing that. Hey, I'd like to wrap up with a little lightning round, if that's OK with you. Uh, a few quick questions and let's start with this one. What's the most influential or maybe your most favorite book that you've read? It can be now or it can be many years ago. Oh, I have to go with Clayton Christensen's How Will You Measure Your Life? Mm. Clayton Christensen, the great business writer, he just passed actually during COVID, but he wrote a book, The Innovator's Dilemma and The Innovator's Solution. 
And part of that was the inspiration of reinventing Resmin, right, in the mid-2010s. But his third book that I, I love the most was How Will You Measure Your Life? And, mm. and what it does is it applies business strategy and business strategy thinking into life planning, career yeah. planning, and, and making all the decisions. And chapter seven was how to stay out of jail. <laughs> he wrote a chapter on, <laughs> on Mr. Good. Skillings. He was in the same HBS class as the Enron CEO. Is that we right? Oh, wow. And, and he's like, well, how did he and I, and he said we were both idealistic Harvard Business School people in the 70s, and we both had the exact same approach in 1978 when we graduated. How did he end up here, and how did I end up here? And he, he analyzed all the small business decisions, and it was, you know, it was like Skillings took, oh, I could do this, I could do this, I could do this, and just tiny little ethical decisions that were just on that gray area. That right. ended up in, you know, one of the biggest frauds uh, in right. the history of the energy industry. And so his approach on that is how you measure your life looks at Mick Farrell, looks at himself at 80 years of age with his loving wife on the rocking chair, looking out at the grandchildren and comes back to how do I end up there versus where, where the Enron got yet. And it's not just A or B, but it's that applied to everything. And when you do that, it makes every single decision very simple. Yeah. Because when you come down to every individual decision, you know what the right one is to do. And the right one is often tough. It's often tough because you've got to go out yeah. and talk publicly or talk to your peers or talk to your friends or talk to your employees. But tough news, traveling at the speed of light, actually is transparency and genuineness and leads to a happier person in your personal life and a happier CEO. But yeah, How Will You Measure Your Life by Clayton Christensen. Okay, must must read. I'm going to get that one for my July reading list for sure. All right, I've got to ask you a somewhat political question. I'm in Washington, right? So you have a favorite U.S. president over the years and why? Wow, well, you know, it's funny. This year I've lived as long, actually longer in the United States than I lived in Australia where I grew up. I was 24 okay. when I came over and I just turned 50, so 26 years here. I love uh, U.S. history. I think in modern times I'd have to say President Reagan, what yeah. he did to take on communism and to really stand up to it. In those early years, I was quite socially liberal and I, I probably wouldn't have voted for him if I'd been living right. in the country at the time because it wouldn't have been my politics. But looking back on those eight years and how it changed the course, it's come back again now with Russia invading yeah. Ukraine, right. but just watching how the West stood up with strong leadership yeah. from both Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. I'm not sure they were perfectly lovable people. Yeah. They're right. citizens and they're right. pretty tough. But what Reagan was able to do there in modern times and going back in time, you'd have to look at, at Lincoln and what he did for the United States in uh, yeah. taking on slavery in an unpopular time. And, and of course, he was a, a victim of his times. But some of his writings about actually the spiritual side of President yeah. Lincoln and how he gave it all up to God and he prayed every day and he really thought through his decisions. I'd have to say historically, Lincoln would be, be my number one. That's a great answer. And, and I, I think I would agree with you on both of those. Those are two amazing men that we can learn a lot from. So kind of a, a related question. If you could have dinner with one person alive today or from the past, who would it be? Oh, goodness. It's a really good one. I've got so many, whether it's in my, my desire for music, I, I'd love to talk to Dvorak. If it's in literature, I'd love to talk to George Bernard Shaw for dinner. In my spiritual life, I'd love to meet and have dinner with, with my Saviour, Jesus Christ. And so right. I'd have to go with the third, yeah. in reverse order. Right. To, to have dinner with God would be pretty special. That would be. 
I thought maybe you're going to say the Pope because I uh, periodically see you retweet things from the Pope. And I started following as a result of that, Mick, and some amazing lessons that come out of that Twitter feed as well, right? Yeah, it's interesting how, and you think about it, the only social media I do is, is LinkedIn and Twitter because I find some of them, Facebook, it's just not interesting how many Starbucks I had or that yeah. I had, you know, a whiskey yeah. with my dad for Father's Day yeah. last night. I don't think yeah. the public needs to see that. But I do think that the ability to, on LinkedIn, for me to put a post that shows something we're doing for Juneteenth or something we're doing on some of the ERGs in our business and our Black Excellence ERG or something I'm doing like an acquisition we just made. The fact that 20,000 people over a weekend can know that we bought Medifox Darn, a software company in Germany last week yeah. for a billion dollars. Yeah. Or to that extent, like the leader of 2.1 billion Catholics can yeah. put a tweet out and I don't know what the followership, it's probably not 2.1 billion, but it's probably hundreds of millions of people can right. get that idea from him. But I'd go back to the founder of the church, not the current the current yeah. uh, vicar. <laughs> anyway, Scott, that's, that's great. That's amazing. Well, thank you for taking time to join us today. An amazing interview. I learned a lot, Mick, from you. Also, thank you for your leadership at AdvaMed and your support for the entire industry and what a difference you made during the biggest crisis we had of our lifetime from a healthcare standpoint. And so we applaud you and uh, and all the leaders in your company for that. So thanks for taking time to talk to us today. Scott, it's great to be here with you. And thanks for your leadership and herding the cats and getting us all together through the COVID crisis, semiconductor crisis. And let's hope there's not a crisis. Let's hope yeah. the next phase is us, whether it's a recession or not, medtech, taking care of people, saving lives and just changing the world through digital health like we, like we can do going forward. Very well said. Let's end it on that. Thanks. Thanks, Scott. For those of you listening, thanks for tuning in. For more episodes, visit advamed.org slash podcast or subscribe to MedTech POV on your favorite streaming platform. Until next time, this is Scott Whitaker. Have a great day.